The Dave Berta Podcast is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network powered by ATB. To find other amazing Alberta-made podcasts, visit albertapodcastnetwork.com. I'm Dave Cornoyer, and you're listening to the Dave Berta Podcast. We are recording this episode on Sunday, February 23rd, 2020, and we're joined by our producer, Adam Rosenhart. Hey, guys. Hey, Adam. How's it going? Good. Great to great to have you in the home studio today. We're, we're, we're glad to be here at, uh, at uh, Dave Berta Rosenhart World Headquarters. <laughs> and we're also joined by our special guest, Chris Gussin. Hello. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Nice to be here. Chris is a climate activist and communicator based here in Edmonton, Alberta. So tell us a little bit about yourself, Chris. Um, yeah, so thanks so much for having me on. It's lovely to be here. Um, I uh, come from a marketing and communications background professionally. Uh, my most recent gig was uh, at the government of Alberta. I was there for a couple of years responsible for visual identity and graphic design. Um, so I have some background in sort of branding and uh, other forms of marketing. Um, but more recently, uh, you know, I've always been worried about climate change. I've always known about it. Uh, I would say like for my whole 20s, I tried to make those personal lifestyle choices to uh, reduce my own carbon footprint. So biking as much as possible, um, eating a plant-based diet. Um, But I would say in the last kind of year, year and a half, like my concerns about climate change really spiked, right? So seeing things like the IPCC report giving us, you know, right now it's about a decade to cut global emissions in half and also seeing young people. So people in their teens and 20s marching in the streets, uh, you know, at unprecedented rates. So I have sort of had this awakening over the past little while um, that personal action is good, but we actually now need collective action to uh, get the kinds of radical political changes necessary to uh, weather the climate crisis and come out in a better way outside of it. So I decided um, in June to quit my job at the government and go full time into the climate movement. Um, Still trying to figure out uh, what that looks like in terms of like full-time paid work. So right now I'm just Mm -hmm. volunteering a bunch of time with Extinction Rebellion Edmonton, Climate Justice Edmonton, um, and helping out wherever I can with the movement. a radical sabbatical, as one of my friends that, called that, it. That's a that's a great term, and I think yeah. I think the I think the first time that we met, you have to correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, you were involved with uh, Make Something Edmonton, and, yes, and and we did a video about how much or there was a video about how much people in Edmonton love winter or something like that. And yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, trying, what, was, were you in the video? Or? I was in the video. Yeah. 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 That's right. So I'm originally from uh, Ontario. I grew up kind of moving around. Uh, my dad was a diplomat. Um, but I moved here to Edmonton like six and a half years ago. Okay. Um, and my first job was with Make Something Edmonton, which was really a great way to get connected with the community. Uh, learn about all the really interesting stuff happening in like tech and arts and creativity. Um and I think that really um, sparked for me a sense of civic engagement. So like I really do credit Edmonton with um, starting me on this journey uh, to think more about what my role as an individual citizen mm-hmm. is in shaping the city around me and the world around me. Um, and now it's taken an even more interesting turn. Uh, you know, I, I think my tendency is to be a nice person. I don't want to rock the boat. And I think there is this sort of hidden taboo around talking about climate change in Alberta. And I kind of even though it was never made explicit, like I kind of felt that. So I was never really sharing my personal fears about climate in the workplace or mm-hmm. 
um, with friends. Um, but now I think like there's an imperative for all of us to kind of shake things up a bit more and, and just talk about it. And, you know, as make something Edmonton's famous mural says, take a risk. It's the most Edmonton thing you, you can do. So I'm trying to live, live by that too. Right. There, there you go. You can, you can thank, uh, uh, make something Edmonton for the inspiration. Exactly. Yeah. So how you talk about climate change in, in Edmonton and in Alberta, uh, and some of the opportunities you've had provided to yourself to, to, to talk to talk to people about it has raised the ire of certain uh, post-media columnists. Now, I, I'm referring back to a, a column from, from David Staples in the Edmonton Journal back in January where he took issue with you. I mean, he took issue with, with you, but he didn't really, it wasn't really clear whether he was taking issue with anything that you said because it wasn't clear that he actually knew what you were talking about when you were, when, when you were there at the City Hall School in October last year, I think it was. Yeah, that's right. So I, um, more than just October, like I kind of like every couple of weeks, um, for that fall, uh, term, I was going in and doing class visits. Um, you're probably familiar with, I think probably a bunch of your listeners are familiar with the city hall school program, but, uh, different, uh, sixth grade classes from the Edmonton region, uh, get to go and be embedded within city hall, uh, in a special classroom there for a week and they get all sorts of different guest speakers that come in uh, the overall theme is using your voice for change like active active citizenship mm-hmm. right so i was sort of on a menu um, of speakers who could come in teachers could select that climate change is on the curriculum already in alberta so it's not a controversial thing um, but yeah i think uh, city hall school uh, as they do with all their guests they tweeted about it they're mm-hmm. like we're we were glad to have you know chris here talking to the students about climate change. And, um, you know, I think like back in the fall, David Staples retweeted one of those tweets and says like these extinction rebellion types like being led into our classroom. So I think it was like nagging at him for a little while or like he, at least he was mulling over it. Um, but uh, yeah, I was surprised when I saw this column come out because the night before it published around 10.30 p.m., I got a, a David Staples in my mentions uh, saying he wanted to uh, interview me. And I thought it would be okay to get back to him the next morning with uh-huh. a message and my to- Totally reasonable assumption. Yeah. Um, but by the time I did respond to him, a friend sent me a link and said, hey, looks like, you know, you looks like you're in the journal. So uh, he had already published. Um, so instead of quoting me, he, you know, scrolled through some of my uh, Twitter accounts, sort of like uh, paraphrased some of my spicier tweets. And uh, basically, I think the headline was like, uh, preaching that fossil fuels are the enemy of humanity has no place in Alberta classrooms. Very conveniently coincided with the UCP's messaging for the week, which was around uh, curriculum review and, you know. Funny was, that, eh? Yeah, really uh, strange how that happens. It's an amazing coincidence. Yeah. yeah. So so how do you how do you talk to, I mean, in, in, the, in the environment that we exist in in Alberta, where the media largely is, is compliant with, if not outright climate denial, um, complacency on the yeah. current situation. How do you talk about climate change in Alberta yeah. to Albertans? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, first, first of all, in terms of like, how do I talk to the, if David had chatted with me, I would have told him. Yeah, what would you have said to the David classroom Staples? Sessions look yeah. like. um, I start by going in and asking the kids what they know about climate change. Um, cause I don't want to scare them. Um, and I, yeah, so I don't go in, you know, with a presentation that I would give to adults about climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, so it may surprise, uh, our education minister, but the kids know a lot about climate change and they aren't just learning about it in the classroom. They're learning about it on YouTube. They're talking to their parents about it. Um, they're talking to each other about it. So this is a reality. They're already familiar. Um, they know the difference between climate and weather, which seems to be something that eludes, uh, some columnists, uh, <laughs> in this province. 
Um, and then I try to go from there to a very positive message. It's serious. It's happening. It's being caused by humans, but we have the power to change it. And there's a lot of good we can actually have with, if with Edmonton as the example, we can have a much better city if we build a carbon neutral city. Right. So that's kind of my approach when I'm talking to uh, the kids uh, about it in classrooms. Um, as far as like general Albertans, um, you're familiar probably with a project called the Alberta Narratives Project. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So that was like research on how to talk to different types of Albertans about climate change. So, you know, I think like media outside of Alberta and even us as Albertans, we are guilty often of like thinking of Alberta as a monolith. But there's a huge majority of Edmontonians who accept that climate change is real. I think it's like 80 something percent, yeah. almost 90 percent mm -hmm. and want to see action. So that's a very different audience from uh, perhaps rural Albertans or more conservative Albertans um, who may still uh, be skeptical of the science um, and, of course, are tied up with their allegiance and their pride in the oil and gas industry and see climate action as an attack on that, right? So I think it depends which audience you're talking to. Mm -hmm. um, if you're talking to uh, people who already get it, um, you know, I think of some of my former colleagues, I think about your audience people who are well-educated and, um, you know, believe in science. I think part of the message for folks like that is this is, this is the end game. Like this is the time to act. Like we need more people to do things that might not be comfortable. That mm -hmm. means going to marches, um, like protest and activism while it's not a, um, you know, light touch communication strategy, it is effective. Like there was a study that came out recently that said in 2019, Google search, uh, traffic for terms climate action and climate emergency went up 19 or 20 20 fold Whoa. Um, and wow. that's a credit that's credited to the youth climate movement right mm -hmm. so i think for people who are sort of in the middle where they know that climate change is real and maybe they even accept the term climate emergency i think the communications is about do you really have you really come to terms with like how bad this is and what are you willing to do to protect um your kids future right um, so I think that's a different audience from the conservatives or the opponents of climate action. Uh, for folks like that, I think it's about appealing to Albertan values like fairness. So there's a, some, it's really quite interesting. I think there's a lot of um, potential for rapid change in the political dynamic in Alberta because we have uh, rural farmers and ranchers getting up in arms about oil and gas companies that are delinquent on their taxes now mm -hmm. um, we have this crisis of uh, oil and gas cleanup liabilities uh, and we have examples of conservatives who say i heart oil and gas but then they applaud groups like united we roll for breaking uh, picket lines like the uh, unifor picket line outside the um, co-op refinery mm -hmm. in regina so there's this interesting moment now where I think even the traditional opponents of climate action are starting to see that oil and gas doesn't heart them back, right? So mm. I think there's something to that. But you get what I'm saying. It's mm. not just a monolithic Albertans. Absolutely. Um, there's 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 the conservative uh, Albertans that you have to message to, but then there's also folks who, um, I think climate denial has many forms, and like I think there's any, there's many people who can say yes, I believe in climate change, and I do support strong action but they are still going about their day as if we're in a normal situation. The planet has fundamentally changed already, right? Mm -hmm. I, I find one of the the challenges, I mean, one of the challenges in terms of talking about climate change and environmental issues in Alberta is, I mean, the, the oil and gas industry is so 
tied into our economics, economic system, our political system, even, even our culture in this province. I mean, our hockey team, our professional hockey team in Edmonton is called the Oilers. So, so I think, I think for a lot of people, it's, it's, they may acknowledge that something's wrong and something needs to change, but trying to, uh, trying to, you know, explain that or trying, trying to get them to the point where they, where they understand that fundamental things are going to need to change with the industry that, a lot of Albertans identify with, I think is a big hurdle. And I don't think it's impossible to talk to Albertans about this. I think I, I remember um, last year, um, uh, Seth Klein from BC put out, he did a, a bunch of polling with Abacus and they were talking about uh, measuring the levels of urgency that Canadians across the country felt about climate change. And not surprisingly, there was Alberta was at the low end of, of the general population feeling an urgency about climate change. But when you went through and looked at the polling, a lot of Albertans, a surprising number of Albertans, agreed with some of the solutions to deal with climate change. So the the level of urgency wasn't necessarily there, uh, but but the solutions had did have support. Yeah, that's a great point. I remember that polling, and it was very heartening to see. Um, you know, you can pull on individual planks like a just transition for fossil fuel workers, uh, jobs retraining. A lot of this stuff is very popular. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you don't necessarily need to frame it as, um, and in fact, one of the, um, uh, as part of sort of the postmortem on the rollout of the NDP's climate leadership plan, I think they reflected that and learned from the Alberta Narratives Project that Albertans don't respond very well to this idea of like, a moral high ground like we have to do this because mm. it's the right thing to do and because often they'll counter that with well what about china what about india right um so one thing you know i didn't mention in talking about messaging and i think you touched on it just now is uh the climate movement and folks who want to see rapid climate action we can win on the jobs message alone as well so you know the ucp they basically took the top three most high high polling issues and they put mm-hmm. them on their lectern sign their podium sign for the election so jobs economy pipelines yep. you don't have to swap all of that out you you, you still um if you're messaging um and if a political party say the ndp wanted to run on an ambitious um climate uh platform next election they could say jobs economy green new deal um and so that's something that i'm really excited about and i am meeting a lot of folks who've been involved in climate activism longer than me who are very excited that now globally um, we're seeing the popularity of this idea of a Green New Deal, which is a um, economic mobilization that we haven't seen since mm-hmm. um, the original New Deal, um, World War II, that responds to the severity of the crisis. Um, and it's a huge job creator for Albertans, right? So uh, there's a researcher named Reagan Boychuk. I don't know if you're familiar with his work. Re- Reagan was a guest on the yeah. podcast yeah. The two episodes, two episodes ago. ago. Oh, so not yeah. that long ago. Yeah. yeah. Um, so Reagan, I'm sure, talked to you in depth about the potential for a jobs boom from reclamation, right? So that can be unleashed. We can have a jobs boom with very little retraining in green energy, uh, net zero buildings and green energy retrofits for buildings because not just power generation, but also efficiency is part of this transition. So you can have a bunch of people who are unemployed now who have skills in construction who go into that. So there's amazing potential there. Um, so, uh, you know, one way of, th- of thinking about it is our obsession with oil and gas. And it's a difficult thing because, like you said, it's deep in our identity mm-hmm. as Albertans. And in some ways, the story of oil and gas is more powerful than the industry itself or, you know, its economic impact. Um, if we can break out of that, there's there's all of these amazing jobs on the horizon, not to mention 
you know, cleaner air, a better future for our kids, um, and not cooking the planet. How do you get, um, how do you convince people to move past the idea of things like, you know, uh, green activists, climate activists are trying to get us to all give up our cars. Mm. So the idea of like an austerity imposed by climate. Yeah. How do you, how do you get people past that? Is Is there a way? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. So I think, um, there's sometimes headlines that you'll see that talk about like rationing or austerity. Um, and I think it's true that things have to change. Um, but I think we need, I think we need good storytellers. Like all of us in this room have a background in communications. Um, there's so many talented storytellers in Alberta. We need to start making it tangible and real and irresistible for people what this new um, world could look like. And that w- that could be a different world, but it could also be a world where you have more time with your family. Um, you know, it could be a world where um, you do a job that's closer to home and it's more satisfying. So I think it's about um, not talking about rationing or austerity but rather talking about possibilities and opportunities Mm -hmm. Um, but yes that is a very easy talking point for the right uh, to use Um, another thing is that we need we need a robust story about how it's not just green activists but it's also it's not just about the climate crisis but it's also about the crisis of inequality right and it's the crisis of austerity and and these reactionary governments that are in power and are, are imposing austerity claiming that will bring jobs but now it's it's quite apparent that you know it's not bringing jobs right so they're saying that we need austerity so that we can balance the books and not leave debt to our children i think that folks who accept the science um to collectively we should be saying who cares about that like it's like we need to throw everything we can and invest everything we can in setting up uh, a transition so we have a safe world for our children so we, we we've talked about this on the podcast before and adam and i were actually just chatting about this before we started recording uh the the lack of economic alternative that progressive parties have been offering over the past number of years. And I think back to the 2019 election where the NDP's re-election campaign, they did talk about climate change. They did talk about some economic points, but largely their campaign revolved around um, uh, social issues, cultural issues. I'm talking about gay straight alliances. Like they really went and it was very, very much focusing on, on what they believed were the, were the weaknesses on, on social issues that the UCP had. And there was a real lack of kind of any real economic alternative. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that that's, I mean, that's something that we've seen from center left and, and social democratic parties in the Western, in Europe and, and North America for the past number of years is, is very much a moving to the center, moving to the right, adopting kind of neoliberal conservative policies. Mm. Um, so the, but, but what seemed that was big, that was missing in 2019 was actually a, a counter, as you said, uh, the, the UCP focused on the three kind of key issues that they'd figured out jobs, economy mm. pipelines, and those issues resonated with a lot of Albertans and the NDP didn't really, provide any kind of alternative to that or, or their version of that. It was just kind of like the status quo. They were kind of agreeing with most of it. They were both, it was a race to, 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 uh, a race to figure out who was more or to prove who was more pro pipeline. Um, so when you talk about the green new deal or the green, the, the green jobs boom, I mean, is that possible in a province that in like Alberta that, that a political party would, uh, would adopt those types of policies? Like what, what do you think? Yeah, exactly. So in, you're right. In the 2019 election, it, it seems like the NDP strategy was to try to be uh, in a race uh, against the UCP to see who was more pro pipeline and to sh- and to show their credentials in like their last 
few years in office, like, you know, lots of effort, at least amongst my colleagues, was poured into the Keep Canada Working campaign, mm -hmm. trying to move poll numbers on support for pipelines. So they were trying to say, we're, we're just like the UCP in our support of oil and gas and pipelines, but we don't all have all of that baggage around social issues mm -hmm. and we're not going to impose austerity. Um, and now, post-election, it seems like they're maintaining that strategy. So they're still um, coming out in support of huge projects like the Tech Frontier Mine, the largest um, open pit oil sands uh, mine ever proposed. Um, you know, they're still banging the, dr the drum for TMX, right? So it's disheartening to someone like me because I think they have a tremendous opportunity to again, find a way to, to be delicate about the messaging, but say like, we can be proud of our history of oil and gas. What did we just hit the 70th anniversary of Leduc? I think that was like, was that, I think we Leduc just hit the 70th one? anniversary yeah. of Leduc. So like 70 years is a good run, right? Yeah. Again, it's very yeah. dangerous messaging in Alberta to say, yeah. okay, you've had a good run, but I think we can tap into the pride and the history of Alberta as, um, you know, an energy innovator, but we can say, let's be real like climate science is real you're seeing this on twitter with some of the backlash to like the buffalo declaration like uh, you've got a bunch of people saying i am albertan i believe in climate action right yeah so in some of the debates i've had online with people they say even conservatives they say okay except that we need a green transition where's the roadmap so i want to see a major political party in alberta offer that roadmap yeah and that because people will not leap unless they see a clear plan uh, you don't want to get too into the weeds either. So you need big, ambitious proposals. And again, the Green New Deal offers that. So it says, you know, we will protect workers. We care about workers. That's the NDP's identity. Is mm -hmm. it, it, it should be the party of workers. So I think that uh, the UCP is trying to tap into the right-wing populist energy that is ascendant right now in Alberta. But I think there is a left-wing populism that is in our history that can be offered up and and channel through the green new deal as a robust alternative and and so i guess your question uh dave was do i think that's realistic do i think a party will embrace that so uh involved as i'm uh, right now i'm i'm you know having conversations with lots of my more centrist friends and they say oh you're you know you're kind of um a wild-eyed idealist like you're not being realistic but you know, the only thing that's not malleable is the laws of physics, the laws of thermodynamics. We know that the climate crisis, we're just getting a taste right now of the impacts that are already baked in with the carbon that's already in the atmosphere. So the intense wildfires that took over the entire continent of Australia, flooding in Indonesia, that's just a taste of what's already to come. And so I think people need to reckon with the fact that it's real. Um, it's a it's a crisis, but it's also a great opportunity. And I think mm -hmm. anyone who's listening to this who has connections with the Alberta NDP um needs to be start talking to their elected officials it needs to be thinking about how can we um sell this idea that the stronger strategy is to offer a real economic alternative like you said yeah, and, and and a recognition that that attitudes around i've said this before on this podcast before that attitudes around the oil and gas industry and the urgency an increasing urgency around climate change a feeling of urgency around yeah. climate change is increasing across the country and across the world i mean it's it's not just but it's not just indiv the individual population it's large financial institutions yeah. it's large pension funds i mean we've seen a number of of 
very large uh, pension funds and banks from in Europe uh, with say, announced that they're withdrawing investments in, in the oil and gas, specifically in the oil sands in Alberta. Uh, we saw Moody's, for example, the international ratings, bonds ratings company based in New York, uh, basically say that they were they were downgrading Alberta's rating because of a lot a lot big contribution was was climate issues and over dependence on oil and gas. Yeah, and those aren't exactly uh, radical activists, no, are they, right? No, exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, Jason Kenney said that would you say the Moody's was was infiltrated by or not infiltrated the European the, green left agenda or whatever? Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. Which is just like ridiculous. He's gonna run out of uh, he's gonna run out of financial institutions to scapegoat. Yeah, like right? Mo- Moody's is a you know it, it this is cap this is capitalism. So yeah. so 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 capitalism <laughs> is skeptical about it. The market. I mean, the, that that's the the thing that I find so funny with the with the setting with setting up the the Canadian Energy Center, the War Room is that the their biggest opponent or their biggest challenge is the free market. Is markets yeah. are changing and markets are adapting to climate change. Uh, capitalism wants to save itself. Mm. Like that's natural. Mm-hmm. They're looking ahead. These big companies are looking ahead. Uh, you know, fifty, a hundred years down the road, and they're going to try to they're trying to think how are we going to survive and how are we, are we still going to be making money and and there's a real missed opportunity. I mean, Alberta has missed a lot of opportunities. Our governments have missed mm-hmm. a lot of opportunities, but there's a real missed opportunity if we don't acknowledge that the world is changing and try to figure out now what's next. Yeah. So, I mean, are, you had a question. I was just going to say, you said something really interesting that I think is is missing from the political narrative. And I think it, it maybe it's too nuanced, but Alberta has a great history uh, of an energy industry mm. and i think i think it, it behooves us to recognize the difference between an oil and gas industry mm-hmm. and an energy industry because mm. we innovated the oil sands and that was yep. great in the 70s and 80s yeah it's time for us to move on to the next thing and what i find really fascinating is that the the folks on the right just can't wrap their heads around renewal renewables mm-hmm. but they're interested in pursuing things like nuclear power yeah that's an that's a form of energy whether you, you know you agree with yeah. its efficacy mm-hmm. or whatever like there, there seems to be an appetite, and I think I'm, I'm not saying communication is going to solve the problem, but there's an opportunity definitely to shift the narrative away from it's not about oil and gas, it's about energy, and and the the forms that can take from a green perspective, especially I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think communications is a big part of it. And I think even just that basic table stakes of let's talk about it. Let's let's talk about climate crisis. Let's talk about climate emergency. Let's talk about solutions. And yeah, like going back to David Staples, he loves to use nuclear as sort of a wedge or a cudgel in trying to like um, claim that folks uh, who are in the environmental movement are not scientific or not based in reality. Um, the fact is like, Nuclear takes a long time to build out. We yeah. have 10 years to like, you know, slash emissions in half uh, to have a, you know, 66% chance of uh, keeping global warming under 1.5 degrees Celsius. So um, we need to deploy the solutions that are available now, which is like wind and solar Definitely. Um, and energy efficiency. But I see your point there. I think it's interesting. I think the conservative frame and the conservative mindset uh, is attracted to something like nuclear because it is still extractive and centralized. Um, it's something that there can be a lot of profit made from, whereas something like solar and wind uh, has potential to radically transform how energy is delivered, uh, decentralize it. So I think there's a lot of interesting stuff there. And Dave, you were sent, you were talking about the markets themselves moving away, right? So again, I wonder, and I ask listeners who are connected with the NDP, what, why, are, why is the NDP not preparing for? Um, in a couple of years time when the markets have even further shift away and it's not necessarily going to be a linear shift it won't be a linear shift Mm -hmm. Um, there is a carbon bubble there are so many the valuation of these massive oil and gas companies is um, predicated on 
uh, future profits from what will become stranded assets. We know this, right? Uh, so it's going to be this this shift that's going to happen a lot faster than any of us realize. So I think we need to be ready for that. And then I, I, one thing again, this is a this is sort of a po- political evolution for me. Um, I never identified as a centrist, but I think before I started reckoning with the political changes that are needed and the economic changes that are needed uh, around climate. Um, I believed in kind of incrementalism and I thought, okay, like if I watch the daily show and, uh, vote for progressive candidates, then I'm a progressive, but I didn't really make that distinction between, uh, being a centrist and being a leftist. Right. And so I think it's important that we have political leaders who don't just leave it to the markets for us to get out of the climate crisis. So you're talking mm-hmm. about capitalism mm-hmm. wanting to save itself. So one thing that brings me a lot of fear is what if more people do accept this, but then they're looking for how they can make profit off of it. Yeah. And that means privatized. Um, that means, and, and, you know, we see parties like the green party, like proposing things like privatized companies going to solve the clean water crisis in indigenous uh, communities in Canada. Um, there's a guy who, um, used to, he was, he's an old boss of mine. And now I saw on LinkedIn that he's running a, uh, indoor air quality solutions company. So like you can imagine all of these private companies saying, okay, like people need clean air. We're going to sell rich people, uh, good air filters for their homes so that they can be safe when there's, you know, wildfire smoke days more commonly and stuff like that. So I think part of this, uh, left populism as an answer to right-wing austerity is saying everyone deserves to be safe. There's a massive injustice that is being unleashed on the world in terms of the poorest people in the world, least responsible for the climate crisis, suffering the most and suffering first. So I think part of it is a moral crisis. And and yeah, it is a crisis of capitalism. And and I very only recently have I kind of realized there's a distinction between a leftist Green New Deal and sort of a capitalist like green, green capitalist Green New Deal. Mm -hmm. Right. This episode of the Dave Berta Podcast is brought to you by That's Food. It's a new podcast from CJSR, Edmonton's campus and community radio station. It explores the backstory of food in Edmonton, one meal at a time. Here's a taste. What? You never heard of That's Food? You know it's a good podcast, right? That's Food is a new podcast from CGSR, Edmonton's campus and community radio station. Handmade with love by University of Alberta students. Telling the backstory to food in Edmonton, one meal at a time. I come from a big bread family, so like toast on toast on toast, probably with maybe a different item you can toast. There's lots out there that's happening in Edmonton. I mean, we are not a sleepy city like most people think. I mean, we have stuff going on all the time, which is exciting, right? That's so tough. It's hard to pick. Pick just one flavor. But you can always pick birthday cake. But you can always pick you can always pick birthday cake mm-hmm. on your birthday. On your birthday. Yeah. This podcast explores a wide range of topics on food, ranging from interviews with influential food people to a deep dive into classic Edmonton meals. We'll be coming out with seven episodes. But who's this podcast for? People who are interested in stories of Edmonton, or food in Edmonton, or both. Especially broad uni students who go to events for food. Basically every day, bruh. It's every day, bro. You can find us at That's Food on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or wherever you download podcasts. And on our website, that'sfood.transistor.fm. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at That's Food CGSR. New episodes drop weekly starting February 10th. But is it food? That's food. Listen to That's Food on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download podcasts. You can also find it on their website, thatsfood.transistor.fm. That's thatfood.transistor.fm.
The Dave Berta Podcast is also brought to you by the Edmonton Community Foundation. You should check out the Well Endowed Podcast, produced by the Edmonton Community Foundation. It's hosted by Andrew Paul and Elizabeth Bonkink and produced by Lisa Pruden. And the show explores the vast impact of passionate people who are working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in. The Edmonton Community Foundation also helps create endowment funds. So the podcast tells the story of how those endowments intersect with the community. You can subscribe at thewellendowedpodcast.com and you want to check out their latest episode, which is called Kids in Space, where they find out about the Student Spaceflight Exchange Program. It sounds really cool. Check it out at thewellendowedpodcast.com. So there's, you know, there there is a growing leftist populist movement, climate, uh, a growing and very vocal climate justice movement. Now we talk, you know, so we talked about that. We talked about the electoral politics side of it, but where do like the political parties, but where does that fit in with electoral politics? So, mm. so if, if, you know, if, if, if we're, ha- if, if you're having a trouble convincing the NDP to, to adopt these types of issues and, and uh, you, you said you, you, you've, you're skeptical, or you're, I, I, I assume you're skeptical of the Green Party, mm-hmm. uh, considering your just your recent comments. Where where does that fit in electoral politics? Like, how does that? How do you make your make that heard in electoral politics? I've got the answer. Okay. It's the Alberta Party. <laughs> no? uh, I'm joking. Yeah, I thought. Yeah, who who knows who knows where the Alberta stand, Party stands on this stuff? But yeah, how do you how do you shift electoral polit- politics? How do you shift um, the Overton window? Right. So I think like. The parties, you know, there's this like false um, balance, this idea that like, okay, there is a some kind of center. But right now, like the the center space that basically all establishment parties in Canada are occupying, that uh, the climate policies being offered by those parties still leads us to a world of three degrees of warming, maybe mm-hmm. more, right? And at that point, um, you know, we may be looking at a lot of cascading effects and tipping points, right? So I think part of the role of social movements uh, part of why I got involved with Extinction Rebellion, Climate Justice Edmonton, is because I became uh, convinced, you know, working as a public servant, I was disappointed that we had not yet um, reached this emergency footing on climate. There was no sense that climate was the animating force. And I determined that I needed to get out of there and try to help push from the outside. It's like the car is mm-hmm. stuck. We need to sort of push from the outside. And so... Uh, I would encourage anyone who's listening uh, to think about getting involved in a local climate justice group or with Extinction Rebellion, because I think what will help push the Overton window is this mass uh, uprising, uh, keeping the pressure on, demonstrating that people are not satisfied with platitudes about climate emergency, declaring a climate emergency on the federal level one day and then approving uh, uh, public funding of TMX the next, right? So... um, I, again, like maybe that's not a satisfactory answer, but like I'm not really like a party insider. I don't really know how these sort of internal machinations mm-hmm. work. But I think, as the study that I cited earlier shows, turning up the heat uh, through social movements uh, is a way of making it irresistible and untenable, irresistible for politicians to jump on board with that parade, and untenable for them to maintain their current positions. Mm-hmm. No, no, I think that's a good. I think that's a good answer, and and because I don't, I don't necessarily think. I mean, I, I agree. I don't necessarily think that the the solution is solely through electoral politics. Mm-hmm. I think that there needs to be social movements. And I think that one of the challenges that the NDP faced here in Alberta after they won the election in 2015 is they were a social democratic party that was elected in a place where 
broad and extremely active social movements didn't really exist. Mm. So they, you know, you had you had this kind of center leftish mm. government that was elected, and then immediately uh, the the political right in this province just just started hammering them and didn't give up for four years, and there was no real organized uh, progressive movement to you know go get out go out there and push the NDP to move further further to the left or adopt further progressive policies or maybe go a little harder on uh, on on climate justice issues. Yeah, there was almost a sense like okay, let's be quiet and sit on our hands for a little bit and let them take a shot. Yeah. Then- yeah, which was a real, you know, hindsight. I mean, I mean there are people people expressing the kind of opinion I have now 5 years ago, but in hindsight it very much was a missed opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I think um Social movements and I think, again, climate denial or a sense of complacency is, and again, this is, I think, something we can think about as communicators. Um, It is something that is very much rooted in peer pressure and in social contagion, right? So it's almost like a race now between climate tipping points and social tipping points. Like, so how do we, uh, both through demonstrations and uh, direct action, but also through conversations with our loved ones um because you know if you are an albertan who cares about climate it's likely that you're connected with someone even if it's you know your uncle or a distant relative who is a climate denier or doesn't think we should um, transition away from oil and gas so i think we need this like rapidly growing movement um that also digs in and, and and uses people's relationships and sort of creates that social contagion uh around this tipping point that we need um but yeah, I, I I hope the I hope the NDP is listening and hope they consider this. So one of the I mean we've been talking a lot about provincial politics, but one of the areas where we've seen some movement or at least acknowledgement of a climate emergency mm-hmm. is at the municipal level, at least in one or two municipalities here in Edmonton or here in Alberta. The city of Edmonton in August 2019, city council uh, adopted a. a or acknowledged, voted to acknowledge that there was a climate emergency, declare there was a climate emergency. I think the town of Canmore did the same, or they were debating yep. about doing the same. Um, in Alberta, I believe that's the only two municipalities. In other provinces, I think in Quebec, there are like 200 municipalities yeah. that, that have done done the same thing. But mm-hmm. you were involved with the with lobbying Edmonton City Council yes. to adopt this, this uh, acknowledge that there's a climate emergency. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about that and a little bit about what they will need to come up because what what they'll actually need to do yeah. to 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 be for you to be satisfied with their uh, with their declaration to make sure to, to see that they're taking it seriously sure yeah so um one of the groups i'm involved with is extinction rebellion edmonton um the extinction rebellion i'll just quickly like kind of uh tell you what their kind of four core demands are first one is tell the truth so government must declare climate emergency right so that is the truth of the situation um and so extinction rebellion edmonton even before i got involved was lobbying the city demonstrating really trying to focus on that uh, climate emergency message. So it was really great um, that uh, the city did that. It was also on the same um, day that they passed a motion asking administration to go back and revise the energy transition strategy so that's more ambitious, so that it keeps in line with Paris goals. Um, so just quickly, so tell the truth is demand number one. Second is act now. So governments must act to halt biodiversity loss and reduce greenhouse gas emissions to net zero by 2025. A lot of people laugh at that demand, but you know, you got to start from a strong position. And the fact is, again, the laws of physics will not change, but we can change politics, right? 
Number three is this idea of uh, implementing a citizens assembly. So creating a democratic process for um, people to be selected, to be informed by experts about solutions and then make decisions and then implement them rapidly. And uh, the, that's the three international demands. Extinction Rebellion Edmonton has adopted a fourth demand, just transition. So commit to a just transition that prioritizes indigenous sovereignty and upholds the rights of minority communities and migrants and the needs of workers. So that's something that's just happened again because Extinction Rebellion is decentralized and locally based so we've added that fourth demand um so yeah we were happy that the declaration was made um but of course it is just a declaration um i made some remarks at that council meeting in august where i talked about my experience being a public servant at the government of alberta when a wildfire was happening and what happens when there's an an acute emergency situation is that it becomes the animating force of the entire organization and so we dropped everything else and we made sure that the public was informed and safe right so Eventually, I would like to see elected officials who view the climate emergency and the carbon budget, keeping uh, Edmonton under its carbon budget as sort of the animating principle of government. Um, So I want to say that the people who are working on this problem in city administration, they're good people. They really care about this and they're working really hard. I wish their team was double, triple the size, but they're working on it. So the plan that they're developing now that's more ambitious that actually is a, a good plan. They've been putting a lot of policy on this. So I think council needs to pass that plan. It's going to come to council in June for a review. Um, so people who are listening who care about this can keep an eye out for that and actually attend that meeting to make sure that they feel pressure. Um, and then at the end of this year, they're scheduled to pass that more ambitious plan. So they should um, council should listen to what the experts in administration are saying, and they should do that. Um, but that being said, there's four things that I think are exemplary of truly acting on the climate emergency that I would love to see a city council do. So number one would be declare a moratorium on new road expansion. Um, so right now the city is getting ready to borrow a hundred million, uh, for the Terwilliger drive expansion and another 500 million for the white mud. That is not what you do in a climate emergency. So we know that car culture and sprawl are big contributors to our emissions as a city. So we have to declare a moratorium on new road expansion. That's number one. Number two, loosen zoning rules in central Edmonton um, so that we can have uh, densification, right? So we're slowly doing that, but we should have a mass rezoning for gentle density everywhere in the city so that we're not doing these case-by-case decisions about whether NIMBYs are able to stop, you know, some densification or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, number three, um, the city is redesigning its uh, bus network right now. So there are like higher frequency routes that guarantee a certain level of service. That's great. Higher frequency bus routes should also have dedicated bus lanes so that taking the bus is actually the faster option, especially during rush rush hour. And that would be cheap to implement. It's just about the political will to do so. And uh, number four would be build a bike grid like we have downtown, uh, equivalent scale. Do one of those every five years for the next five years. It's cheap and it's effective and it can really help with active transit. So those are some examples of like the big, bold policies that I think would really, really be fitting of a climate emergency, right? Mm-hmm. Really, yeah, yeah. Actually, actual concrete things that the city of Edmonton, Edmonton could do to demonstrate their seriousness or their, that they're taking this issue seriously. Yeah, exactly. Because it's about uh, making choices. It's about leadership. Um, and the we're already in the emergency like i said there's more impacts to come that are already baked in uh, but this is our golden moment to make decisive take decisive action to to make sure that we don't go into a total dystopia right 
Yeah, and I mean, I mean the municipal level is is I think a, a level of government, and we've talked about. I mean, you can talk about we can talk about what the federal government's doing, but talk about we talked a lot about the province and and the the UCP rolling black rolling back a lot of the initiatives that the NDP implemented. Yeah. Um, and you, we could you know we could talk about whether that was enough or not, whether, whether what the NDP did was enough or not. Uh, but on the municipal level, I mean, I think we're seeing municipalities whether they whether they say they're doing it because of climate change or not, a lot of municipalities in Alberta are actually actively pursuing renewable energy or pursuing these types of these types of initiatives. I mean, the city of Edmonton is one. Uh, we've seen rural municipalities uh, uh, announce that they're powering, they're, they're going to be powering all the municipal buildings with solar panels. So in, these are like rural conservative, you know, People, you know, people in these in these communities are are conservatives. Yet they're mm-hmm. they're looking to the future and they're adopting these types of of, uh, of green, really green plans. Yeah, often on economic uh, reasons alone. Like mm-hmm. maybe they're thinking about climate, but they're also thinking about job creation and they're thinking about uh, efficiency and uh, budget savings too. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I, I think like you mentioned, you know, the UCP rolling back some of the NDP's policies. So they claim to be job creators, but I've met people who were solar installers who are now out of work because um, there's so much uncertainty in that market now, right? So it's like the uh, energy war room tweeted the other day. Oh yeah, we totally give a crap about solar or whatever, right? Like I don't know if you saw that was one of the yeah, like, I saw that more yeah. off-brand or weirder tweets, right? Um, so yeah, like I think we, you're right. Like municipalities are already going for it. Uh, municipalities are also like chronically underfunded, right? So a lot of the rubber hits the road uh, mm-hmm. at the municipal level. Um, and that's where a lot of people are. There's also concentration of people who do accept the science on climate. But uh, it's complex because we have all of these obstructionist uh, provincial governments in Canada right now. And uh, we need a federal government that uh, truly acts uh, on the climate emergency, implements something like a Green New Deal and, and unleashes that financial investment that cities can then deploy, right? Yeah, and, and I think that one of the interesting things that uh, when you look at the some of the stuff that the, when you look at some of the stuff that the provincial government is doing, uh, I'm looking at the fair deal panel that mm. that has been going around the, uh, the as, as I've been calling it the uh, separatist open mic night. Um, <laughs> but they've been traveling around the province, and one of the things that that panel was was tasked with looking at by the provincial government is whether to limit uh, the ability or basically stop the ability of municipalities to. Uh, make financial arrangements or financial deals with the with the federal government, and what I see, I mean, I see that as uh, as taking the the ability of municipality, taking away the ability of municipalities to do to work with the federal government that might be more interested in in pursuing climate change initiatives or renewable energy initiatives, and and not allowing the municipalities to do that, which I think was is would be not great for Alberta. Yeah, I think that would be terrible, and yeah, I, I don't, I think it's, yeah, it's it's an attempt to. Uh, really uh, hamstring cities, make cities reliant on the provincial government and bend them to uh, the province's will. You know, it's not not good. Is it, I, I, do you think they're going to be able to pass that? Is that something, or is it just like the open mic night airing of grievances kind of? Thing? Well, I mean, there's there's definitely yeah. an airing of grievances, mm-hmm. uh, you know, festivus element to yeah. this. But <laughs> uh, but I mean, it is one thing that they included in 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 the mandate of the of the panel, and municipalities are bodies of our creations of the province we talked a little bit about more about yeah. this in our last podcast with yeah. mail when we were talking about mm. municipal provincial relations mm. um but they've i mean the federal or the provincial government has the ability to to implement limitations on municipalities i mean i think the municipalities there, there'd be political repercussions and maybe even legal yeah. uh, ability to to implement legal challenges but it seems like something that they're they're at least uh uh testing the idea out there 
Yeah, and I think, again, like there's a way to tell this story to Albertans that right now we have a government that is essentially captured by oil and gas. And as much as we have warm feelings about oil and gas and the benefits that it's given this province, they are currently attempting to force um, public pensions into uh, IMCO, which is investing in Coastal GasLink and potentially TMX, right? So, you know, and cutting off, you know, our ability to get funding from the federal uh, government. I mean, it's almost like it's a borderline abusive relationship with Albertans where they're saying, no, we're going to continue to prop up this industry um, and we're going to be, you're going to be left like holding the bag uh, when, like you said, financial financial markets move away uh, en masse. Um, so, yeah, it's a scary time. And, and I think we need to be finding ways to show that there is an alternative. Um, and that alternative means identifying uh, the oil and gas industry, specifically oil and gas execs, as like bad actors, right? Um, it's, which is a tough thing to do. Do you think that climate change is going to be a big election issue in the 2021 municipal election? Yeah. So, I mean, as as someone who's working uh, on climate activism, I I think that every every month that proceeds, every year that proceeds from here, it will only become a more uh, intense issue for people. It will only rise in the polling in terms of people's concern. Um, I think I've heard the rumors that, uh, you know, the UCP is preparing to have their sort of slate of endorsed or like tacitly endorsed like conservative candidates. And so I think, um, you know, there will be lots of people running for office who are saying that things like what I just proposed, a moratorium on new road expansion are like totally uh, out there. Right. Um, but no, like we did, we talked about it earlier in the in the chat. Edmontonians are scared about climate change and they want to see action. So I don't see how it couldn't be an issue. What do you think? I think I think you're you're in a position to make it an issue, and yeah. I think it and I think it absolutely should be one. Yeah. Um I just I've come to hate elections, whereas I yeah. used to find them really exciting. They've, mm. they've just turned into monkey shit fights. Yeah. I, I think in this municipal election in particular, the mayoral election, mm. where we don't know at this point yeah. whether the incumbent's running again. Yeah. I mean, it could be a wide open field if Don yeah. Ibison decides not to run again. Um, uh, I think it will require outside groups, or, or I'm not calling it an outside group, but I would require groups outside of of City Hall and the city councillors' orbit to push them into this issue. Because I, I don't think, I don't think, I don't, I don't, I think there'll be a lot of candidates that won't come to this on their own, that they'll need to yeah. be convinced and convinced that this is an issue that they need to talk about seriously. I mean, I think that yeah. we've reached a point where it will be hard for a candidate not to have some kind of climate change yeah. plank, yeah. something yeah. that's that, that uses the words climate change yeah. uh, or, you know, renewable energy or something in their platform. But, but in order to push them to take it seriously, I think that will need to come from pressure from social movements. Exactly. And, you know, I've, being in rooms, uh, you know, at the government where people rolled their eyes at things like um, kids doing classroom walkouts to support GSAs saying, oh, that's not part of democracy. Like you go every four years and you vote. Right. Um, but like you like you were saying, like uh, electoral politics is actually just like the the worst of it. Like the, the best of democracy is people saying, no, there's you know, we have values. There's a, there's a principle there principles of justice. We are in a crisis and we are going to shift things. Right. So I think. Um, you know, these groups that I'm part of other groups around the city, there's a group called climate action Edmonton, not to be confused with climate justice Edmonton that is really focusing on the municipal angle. Conrad Nobert is uh, involved in that group. Okay. Um, yeah, I think there's not going to be any let up from the social movement side in terms of centering climate justice as part of, uh, every level of politics. Good. That's the way it should be. That's right. And, but I would, what I would, it should be that way. And I would say that anyone who's sort of 
again, still has that view that it's just democracy is just about voting or, oh, the kids have got it. You're generate, you know, the, oh, thank, thank, thankfully the kids are being vocal. They'll save us. I would say like everyone who's listening to this, who is worried about climate and you have kids that you want to make sure they have a good future. I think you need to reflect on how can I start donating more to these groups? How can I put more time into these groups? Maybe you take a pause from some of your other volunteer activities. Cause I'm thinking your audience is probably like more civically engaged already than the average, but I think people need to think now in this critical year and this critical decade, the last decade that we have to really shift things before it potentially becomes too late. What are you what work are you going to put in, right? Mm. So it absolutely needs to happen, but the movement needs to get bigger. I'm tired. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of people who are involved in it are, are holding a lot of weight in the movement right now, and I think we need more people and more money and more resources in it, more support. Mm. Yeah, I, I frequently ask myself, what will my... So I, I have a son, he's three years old. I, I frequently ask myself, what will my son ask me? When, yeah. when you know, it's just this, when, when, he's, when he's 20 and I'm... I don't know how old am I now. When I'm in my fifties, yeah. uh, you know, what, when he asked me, "What did I do to help? Yeah. You know, what what did I do to uh, take action on 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 climate issues? What what will I what will I say?" And that's mm. personally, and I haven't quite figured out whether I'm doing enough, mean meaningfully doing enough. Mm-hmm. I mean, having these kind of conversations yeah. helps, but but uh, it is something that I, I think a lot of people are kind of struggling with and and uh, trying to figure out what exactly on a day to day basis when we're you know we're busy with our lives. What what do we do? What can what can we what kind of action can we take on on an individual level? Aside I, from I mean, people who might not be comfortable participating in a blockade on the yeah. Walter Dale Bridge or or yeah. go, have time to take t- time off during the day to go to a rally. Yeah, absolutely. Like I, I want to acknowledge like I'm speaking from a place of real uh, privilege. Like I got lucky um, in my career. I had a job that paid six figures um, as someone who doesn't have a kid, doesn't have a mortgage, doesn't have a car. And so I was able to shovel away the savings from my radical sabbatical. Most people can't do that. Um, but I think now if you think that your personal this happens i've noticed this like when the climate emergency declaration happened there was a journalist from cbc interviewing me and they and they asked what can ebentonians do and and she was really like looking for an answer around like plastic waste or driving less stuff like that that's fine but actually thinking focusing on that and thinking you've done your part is a way of being complacent so like i think that i don't quite know the answer to this i'm really interested in how we can make it socially unacceptable to not go to a march or socially unacceptable to be quiet about climate within like an office setting. Like, so again, like you're both uh, young professionals, like you work in white collar settings. Like at some point we have to hit that social tipping point where it's just unacceptable to uh, be quiet. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know what that mm. looks like, though. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that within your own work cultures or, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, I, I, I don't disagree yeah. with you. I think, like, yeah. I'd like to get to the point where it's like, I didn't see you there this weekend. Where, yeah. where were you? What was more important than this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. You know, I've, I I reached that point where it just felt like nothing is more important than this. And I had to sacrifice uh, some income for a while um, and, you know, prestige, whatever is associated with, like, having a, you know, nine to five job. Um, but yeah, how do we reach that point? And how do we reach that point in Alberta where mm-hmm. right now it's still the social pressure is to stay quiet about this stuff? Yeah. I don't know. I don't have the answer. I wish I did. Yeah. S- send us your answers. Yeah. You know, yeah, seriously. I mean, here's like, here's a tricky thing too. It's like you have, again, like you're right, Dave, like not everyone's going to come to a blockade. 
Um, and there's a lot of efforts. Like we know how PR works. There's a lot of money that's going into these like AstroTurf groups and this mm-hmm. sowing of doubt and saying like with the Witsuidan stuff that's going on right now, like making your average like white settler Canadian feel uncomfortable with picking a side on that. And that's exactly what the folks who, you know, want to see this development go through, uh, you know, want to see indigenous they don't want to see indigenous rights tramp, trampled, but they don't really care about the idea of consent, right? Yeah. So it's in their interest to have a lot of people who are conf- too confused to feel like they can pick a side on this stuff. Um, and that's well-funded, and, and that's where a lot of the resources and interests are, right? So how do we push back on that? Um, I think it's just about acknowledging that we have the people and we need to do it like through conversations. And, um, and the, the other thing with blockades is like wearing masks is really bad PR, right? <laughs> So the masks are for safety. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was um, at the blockade this past week. Um, I wore a mask, but uh, Matt Wolf recognized the mask because I'd worn it in other photos, and he doxed me. Like the uh, an employee of the government of Alberta put this is Matt Wolf, the director of issues management within the uh, office of the premier. Yeah, that's right. So the director of issues management within the office of the premier put up a tweet saying, "Is this Chris Gussin?" Um, and it was like a picture of me from before with like the same neck warmer that I used to cover my face. And then that cascaded into like a fascist uh, Twitter account, like posting more pictures of me, including a very unflattering one of me doing like a treadmill competition like five years ago. (laughs) Um, That and then there was a Facebook account that like included more information about me. And again, it didn't dox me fully like my address was not revealed, but I did get messages in in my Facebook inbox from men whose profile pictures are them with masks on holding guns right saying like don't wear your mask next time we're coming for you so the masks are for safety but it's terrible pr Mm -hmm. yeah so again like i think the biggest uh, safety is in numbers right so how do we reach that point where more people are willing to uh do the brave things that are required Mm -hmm. now Mm -hmm. um and again it's not about recycling better well, and, and seeing the, I mean, I was at the, with, with you know, 10,000 other Albertans and Edmontonians at the, the climate strike march late last year when Greta Thunberg came to Edmonton. And that was extremely powerful to see, mm. like, just a, a, a critical mass of people in the streets marching. I mean, it was, I'd never seen anything like that in Edmonton. I mean, I've been to large marches, but that was, that was, was quite remarkable. But even then you had the, the anti, yeah. uh, anti the counter protesters counter protesters yeah. show up and they were you know yeah. these people were nuts like they were just they were yelling at uh, at moms pushing strollers like it was and yeah. yelling at at young first nations kids who were who were leading the march it was quite uh, it was quite concerning but yeah. at the same time it was it was it was very powerful to see so many people show up and so many people to demonstrate that this you know that this is a critical issue even in a place like Edmonton this is important yeah, exactly. I was I was taken aback when I decided to join the climate movement that like the very first actions that I started to go to, we were warned that like far right um, uh, white supremacists would be there because they try to film and they try to dox and reveal the identities of these uh, uh, climate uh, people who care about uh, climate change. Uh, I think part of it is that the far right is uh, they actually have in some sense a clear, they're in some sense more clear eyed about the climate crisis than the center is. They see that the implications of action on climate change are uh, reshaping of our economy and like more of a sort of, again, if you want, if you care about human rights and care about every, everyone in our society, you need sort of like a leftist uh, solution to this. Right. Um, So they're, they're showing up. Um, I think a lot of people in sort of mainstream society don't see that. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think you're right. If we reveal that, perhaps that's one way of showing people that they need to pick a side, that there's a really dark side and a dark potential future if those people win, right? Yeah. Um, so there's, you know, it's not, um, 
it's not all uh, all sort of rosy going to a climate march. Like there's some there's some uh, active opponents and some scary people coming out to mm-hmm. those too. So and and speaking of, I mean, we talked about bad PR earlier. Mm. The uh, the Canadian Energy Center. Yes, uh, which speak. which I mean is is seems I, I, I punchy, get I, punchy community. Yeah, yeah, punchy communicators led by Tom Wilson in Calgary. Yeah. Uh, I, I get the impression, and I get I mean I hear from conservatives who send me messages lamenting, you know, the way this this thing is working mm. or not working. Uh, I get the impression that this is something. It is a PR subsidy that the oil and gas industry is very quickly starting to uh, uh, not appreciate. Mm. Yeah, uh, because it's not. I don't think it's doing them any favors. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, they keep, uh, you know, when it first started, like I was having chats with people who were like, okay, how can we counter this? And, you know, that's the narrative that Sonia Savage is using in the media is that, oh, the reason that the war room keeps stepping on rakes is because of organized uh, green left activists. But they just, they're just doing this all on their own. Like yeah. they don't really need any help from us. It's pretty remarkable, actually. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a clown car. Yeah. Of, of terrible messaging. Yeah, but it's also like a tremendous waste of public money. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, $30 million a year for the next four years. Well, and if I'm if I'm a leader in the energy industry, yeah. I, I would be super pissed and I'd be lobbying the premier to shut it down because yeah. I, w- I would believe that my industry yeah. could do a better job. Yeah. Yeah, so... What, yeah, what do you think? How do you think it plays out? Do you think it lasts the four years? Or I, yeah. I don't think so. Yeah. I, I can't see how. Yeah, yeah. I think that uh, it, they they wounded themselves about two minutes out of the starting gate with, yeah. uh, with you know, the logo embarrassment. And then it was yeah. just a, a, a clown car um, yeah. flailing around the streets since then. So I think, I don't, yeah. I can't see this thing lasting another six months. But we'll see. I mean, the, the key, uh, I mean, if I've said this before, the key, one of the key characteristics of this government is is never admit you're wrong and never apologize. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So maybe you know maybe it will last four years. But then in terms of the folks, I don't know if it's political folks or energy industry folks who are messaging you. And in terms of like Adam, like you know the idea that they could do it better. Like I think that they, I think that regardless of how good and how punchy the communicators are, they they are rapidly losing any sort of ground uh, from which to make the case of continued expansion of. The oil and gas sector. Well, and leaders of oil and gas companies are talking about how they need to rethink the way they do everything. Yeah. Like that, that's a message that they're out there with. And it's like the Canadian Energy Center is about three decades behind where they are. That's right. Yeah. And I think like, again, like we have to be very wary because um, major oil and gas companies um, do put a lot of money into PR that highlights their investments in renewables and research into things like biofuels. But if you look at a pie chart, um, of their actual investment in those technologies, it's a tiny sliver, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we can laugh at the war room and how bad they are at their jobs. Um, the, even before it was known that the war room was going to be a totally separate entity um, so that it could avoid FOIP, um, I had colleagues at the government who were watching the election platforms and seeing that a war room was being proposed and they were starting to whiteboard what they would do, right? So, like, there again is still um, this mainstream idea in Alberta that. We should, regardless of whether it's within the public service or outside or with in industry or not, we should be standing up for this industry. We should be um, helping it continue to expand, and we should be insisting that the Alberta oil is that last, that mythical last barrel of oil. You know, that final barrel of oil that we all give a big bon voyage party to in the year 2040 or whatever, right? But that is a dangerous idea in a climate emergency, right? So, in what other crisis would you? 
um, abandon the precautionary principle and you would say, oh no, like let's edge as close as we can to disaster, <laughs> even though we have uncertainty and it could be worse than we think, right? So yeah. I think we can make fun of the PR. We can say how we might do it better. But I think we also have to ask ourselves, like perhaps they are failing because the fundamental premise is, you know, on completely unstable ground. And, and the most people in the world are now starting to realize like, we don't, as Kenny, Jason Kenny himself has said that eventually there needs to be a transition. He's talking about it happening over decades, slowly and gradually. I think people are going to realize in a matter of like years, a couple of years, that this transition has to be as fast as possible, mm -hmm. right? And I don't think, even if you changed out all the staff in the war room, like if their mandate is to defend uh, oil and gas, um, I don't see how they can succeed, right? Yeah. Well, we will keep on making fun of the uh, Canadian Energy, Energy Center on this podcast, but we will take we will make sure we take the issue of climate change very seriously. Oh, absolutely! I think like I was talking to a friend who was you know talking about political strategy, and I think the more that there's a sense of fiasco around the UCP, the better for you know toppling them, right? Like, so you just really have to. I mean, again, it's like there's a lot of really serious, terrible stuff. People's lives are being really badly hurt um, by their policies, um, but it's also a fiasco yeah a dangerous clown car <laughs> yes that's a very dangerous clown car yeah no this has been great and i say as a as someone who who identifies as a proud albertan uh you know i'm third generation albertan my family came here first in the 1890s uh this is my home uh it the the entire issue of climate change and this thing that's facing down our province uh very much very troubles me uh it troubles me very much and I mean, I think that having these types of conversations and hearing from people like you, Chris, your story mm -hmm. about how passionate you are about mm -hmm. this, mm -hmm. um, this issue and passionate you are about finding solutions to this mm -hmm. issue uh, and, and taking the kind of action that a lot of people, uh, you know, might be uncomfortable with, but you mm -hmm. feel is necessary. I think mm -hmm. that, that that's uh, that's very uh, 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 it's very powerful. So thanks. So thanks so much for, for coming and talking with us today. Thank you very much. Uh, anytime. So that's it for this episode. Thanks to the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB, for supporting the show. And thanks again to Chris for joining us. Uh, thanks to our producer, Adam, uh, for producing this episode and making us sound so good. Send us your feedback or ask any questions you have for our next episode. You can get us on Twitter and on Instagram at, at DaveBerta or on the DaveBerta Facebook page. Or you can email us at podcast at DaveBerta.ca. Thanks for listening. <laughs>